0: Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the -the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish.
1: Hi, I'm your host, Mike Domish, and thrilled to be here with our special guest, fellow cast member, and a super dear friend of mine, Jessica Pettit. That's spelled Pettit, P-E-T-T-I-T-T. And Jessica's from goodenoughnow.com doing amazing work. As I just said, an incredible friend. Even if not an incredible friend, I would tell you, go watch her YouTube video on Good Enough Now from the National Speaker Association Convention a couple of years ago. Simply sensational. But I want to get right in the heart of this, Jessica, because you're so brilliant. And that's why I wanted you on. Would you please share your life journey that is taking you to sharing the message of Good Enough Now?
2: Sure. What's what's interesting about asking the question, share me about your life journey. So it's been a roller coaster of mistakes, failures, attempts of trying, giving up, and occasionally still occasionally trying, sometimes bumping into things, accidentally finding myself into opportunities, getting fired, and uh, waking up. Pretty much that's the cycle. Specifically what I love about this work that you're doing around mindfulness is oftentimes I feel like when we are being mindful, and I'm using air quotes around it, There's this kind of like beautiful yoga practice, smoothie intake kind of way of being mindful that's so pretentious and so not real. What I really like about actual mindfulness is sitting in struggle, really questioning and debating things that I think there's a part of me at least that I feel like these should be easy to answer. Whenever that kind of bubbles up in me, I'm like, oh, now we're on something because nothing is easy to answer. It's not sexy as much as it is work.
1: yes, absolutely. I mean, that's that's when you know you're hitting home when you it does you have work with discovery, right? there's there's like a moment where a light bulb goes off and there's like, ah,, uh, but it didn't just go, ah, because I'm enlightened and I'm mindful. no, it's because something got dirty and something got got ugly and it hurt usually, like it hurt badly sometimes. And the aha comes out of that. And good enough now, I mean, that's the spirit of what we're talking about right now is I'm good enough. I'm good enough right now, right? That I I can go, I can have all this ugliness and I'm still good, right? I'm still good enough. I have everything I need. And that's part of what I need actually. Is, is that a fair
2: statement? Absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, there's kind of two answers that came to mind immediately, but The first one to go back to kind of that pretentious, perfect way of being, um, I remember the first time I went to a six-day mindfulness silent retreat, (laughs) right? So, like, every good white woman I know where I live, you spend money to go on these retreats so that you, in my world, I get my mindfulness in so that I'm good for the rest of the year, right? Like... It's like running the turkey trot. You never have to work out for the rest of the year because you ran the turkey trot. So I go to the silent retreat and I'm pretty nervous about being the kind of Ally Sheedy character from Breakfast Club at this retreat. Like, what am I doing? And why am I here? And like, what do you mean be silent? Like, you mean like, uh, like literally do not speak to one another? How are we going to communicate? So also another movie reference, I'm kind of Rizzo, like smoking in the back of this silent retreat. And my roommate That's Greece. That's Greece.
1: There are people who may be listening who might not be aware of that, but that is Greece. Yes.
2: Right. So I went to breakfast club back to Rizzo at Greece. So I really am kind of Rizzo and the Ally Sheedy character from that's really who I am. Maybe a little Molly Ringwald, but anyway, so my roommate broke every rule. She was using her phone. She was talking to me and she had spent a fortune on these like gorgeous silk kind of, Afghan kind of robe things and had crystals and cards and she was doing the accessories of mindfulness work. And I I believe she was one of the strongest pieces of that silent retreat because she took the pressure off of me of being doing it wrong, right? So like, oh, that's what wrong looks like. So anything else I'm doing is righter. And ultimately when we get to my book and this is kind of how it came up in my mind, The concept of good enough now isn't about being perfect, but it's about recognizing you could get writer because we're all pretty convinced that we're perfect and right until we get self-critical. So the concept of differently right or leaving room for edits or trying to try are kind of the ongoing themes in the book and my work.
1: Excellent. And the book for everyone listening is good enough now. Uh, and right. so, yes, exactly. There it is right there. And for those watching, there it is on YouTube, but for everyone on our podcast, uh, just, just holding that up there. It's that idea of there are different versions, right? Cause some people can go to that six day retreat and in silence have some of the most and, and totally honor every element of what you think the stereotype is and have the most powerful breakthroughs possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And somebody else will go there and have a completely different set of rules they live by and have a very powerful experience. At which they have a breakthrough. And I think that's just it, right? There, we all have different good enough nows to accomplish that, uh, different yeah. places to get there. Where does it start? Like you mentioned earlier, hey, Mike, my life came from firings and not this and not that. And where did the moment of, of a beginning breakthrough occur to you of what is this telling me about myself? What am I learning about this to help me move forward in a way that I'm growing and able to learn from these, these difficult moments?
2: I think it's about patterns, right? So I've always been kind of drawn to patterns for whatever reason. And sometimes they show up in like what's fair or what's unjust. Studying history, history is constantly repeating itself. There's a pattern there. Getting fired a number of times. The third time I got fired, I was like, hmm, maybe this is a pattern. That paired with kind of these abstract concepts like responsibility Uh, the abstract concept of justice things like that those kind of things those they became patterns is these kind of everyday repeating things occurring with these same abstract thoughts kind of floating around then what I eventually realized was I'm responsible for the patterns that I'm doing in the world consciously unconsciously biased not biased positively or negatively biased the patterns in which of who and how I show up is the primary thing I'm responsible for. So after doing you know 20 plus years of diversity training, what I realized was is often in myself, but definitely in people that I'm working with, one of the patterns was is that people were waiting until they knew enough in order to intercede with bystander behavior, or until they could, they knew exactly the perfect words to use, they wouldn't say anything until then. And I don't, I don't think that's enough. And I, I think that you have to get ugly and scrappy and try. And the bonus of trying is you might fail or it might work or it might lead to something else you have to try. But not playing along isn't an answer and not claiming responsibility for what you are doing, even if what you're doing is not playing, is still a behavior pattern that you're responsible for.
1: Yeah, and I love what you say there because you're really describing either you know there's different versions of what people call this, but you know paralysis by perfection or paralysis by overanalysis. That concept of sooner or later you got to get in the game, right? So if you're at the if you're at the place and you have a chance to get on the court and play in the Olympics or watch the Olympics, why wouldn't you get in and say I've been in the Olympics and I've competed? Why would I jump on that court? And I know that when I was at a certain experience that I went to and other people went to, and you've actually been to the same program that I'm referencing that those who stayed in the outside and were like, well, I'll just figure it out a mile ahead. I won't, I won't get in front of the microphone and say something in front of the group. They never walked away with the same massive level of deep breakthrough than the ones who said, uh, you know, I'm going to get in front of the microphone. And it might even been from a place of arrogance. Like, Oh, I got this. I'm going to get in front of the microphone. But once you got microphone in front of the group and you said something, you were accountable to that, to those words in front of all those people. And suddenly you realized, Oh my what I thought was so simple did not come out so simple. People are looking at me like I'm either nuts or this is a major breakthrough. And, and how did I project that? All this starts to come your way because you got in the game. It's ugly. It can be, it can be loving. It can be t- But you had to get in the game. And, and so I think what you're referencing is that old 80%. Is it enough, right? If I'm at 80% there, is that when I put the book out? or Do I wait till I'm at 95? Or if I wait till I'm at 95 to 100, that book's never getting published.
2: Right. The only edit I would make for that is that opting out of getting into the game is how you're in the game. Right. So like if we really get to what what I would consider mindfulness, choosing to not do something is still the choice of how you're going to show up in that game. Yes. I love that. Right. So like it's not just like I'm going to play but it's recognizing you are involved in other people's playing, whether you suit up or not. So again, this program that we're referencing, I actually didn't speak at the microphone. Ah. And I remember at the time thinking, because I'm very heady, right? Because my model is head, heart, and action. In a very heady way, I'm very articulate, I'm very verbal, I take up a lot of space, so I'll just sit back here and see what happens, right? So that is how I was in that game, is that I was in the game by sitting back. I showed up every time. I wasn't late. I was there. But what ev- the patterns that showed up was that by distracting myself from the moment of wondering whether or not I should or should not talk allowed me to not be mindful of what was happening. And so eventually that would kind of calm itself down and I would be present for the people that were sharing and what I realized was is that love is love and pain is pain. So even as people were sharing stories, that had nothing to do with me. I've never had a stepfather, right? Like, or whatever, like whatever issue, I don't have children. Like on the tangible surface of what was being shared, I could still connect with that pain and they could feel me connecting with their pain because I was present that is who and how I was in that moment. I might not have been at the microphone or I might not have been verbally participating, but the mindfulness required to allow that connection, even though the variables of the story didn't fit my story, but the pain did, that's where my real work was able to be done, which is again, how I showed up.
1: I I love that. And I love that too, because in my own analysis there, I was a little judgy. There's no doubt about it, right? I got in the game. They didn't get in the game. And I got more out of it. They didn't get out of it. And there's a bit of arrogance there that we can do, right? Because we can think our path was a self-righteous one that got me to where I got. And so it's good to catch that and go, whoa, 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 whoa." that's assuming, right? Because I talked to two people who said, well, it was good, but it was okay. Who didn't really jump up on the mic? And then you think, oh, that's what happens. People don't jump on the mic which isn't fair at all. That's not being mindful. That's being presumptuous or making assumptions based
2: on a small group versus what could have been a large group. Right. But I mean, you also said, if if we're deconstructing what you said, you also said that some people got on the mic and were doing it out of arrogance. So what's amazing about being mindful, right, is that you're judging people who are on the mic and you are judging people who are not on the mic. And mindfulness is recognizing some people did or didn't get what you did or didn't get
1: right absolutely and and you you talk about this a lot which is leaving room for edits that's it's a big piece of your work so what we just described was me judging those who weren't on the mic who weren't and what's so great about your work is you say yeah we're going to do that like that don't don't get beating ourselves up about oh i judged no that that's oh, part oh, of the oh, equation Right, right. No, you're going to judge, but you have, I want to let you say it, but you're going to judge or, and
2: the fill in the blank is yes, I judge. And yes, I judge. And so does everyone else. It is a great way to stifle your ability to have a better connection. If you are trying to never make a judgment or an assumption. And we then judge people and ourselves for making judgments and assumptions. So we're like stuck in this toxic loop that has nothing to do with what our actual connection is in the moment while at the grocery store picking out a watermelon. We make judgments and assumptions to feel safe and prepared. There is nothing wrong with that. To feel safe is an important thing that most of us feel entitled to or at least long for the ability to feel safe. To feel prepared is so that we kind of know as we shift through our experiences and our identities like which pieces of us do we need to have ready to go or have prepared to make available then the key of leaving room for edits isn't to amputate those skills it's to recognize you do them i want to pause
1: right there because you said something that i was trying to get us to and you got there which is leave room for edits i really want to make sure everybody heard that which is you judge and leave room for edits there's the it's an and it's not you judge but or or You judge and leave room for
2: edits. And so let's now let's go there. So the leave room for edits means... Well, I just did this actually on another interview. So let's take it off people for just a second, because sometimes it makes people defensive, especially if people have been to a lot of diversity trainings. We have all been told we're never supposed to do this. So let's quiet those voices just a second and have this conversation over here. So you're going to parallel park. So when you're driving around, depending on traffic, how much of a hurry you're in... How long have you been looking for parking? How confident are you in your parking skills? You find a hole in the line of cars and you, in that moment, judge or assume whether or not your skills in your car can fit into that space. All of us have done this and we have been wrong. But instead of saying, oh, I was wrong, we think the space got smaller, a car (laughs) roll. It's the pressure of the traffic behind us. Like we will come up with any other reason to not be mindful of who cares. Like it didn't work. Nobody got harmed hopefully in your parallel parking job. Right? So it's the same skill set. We make judgments and assumptions about every human being we interact with. And we have to, in my opinion, in order to feel safe and prepared. So in making those judgments and assumptions, I think of it as a draft. So you write a story. Even if you are at your local coffee shop and you just want to say, like, thank you, sir or ma'am, you will write a story about who the person is behind the cash register. You're not even reading their name tag. You just that quick make an assumption, write a story, and you, of course, are 100 percent right about that story that you just made. So the key around leaving room for edits is to recognize the absurdity that we think we are going to be 100 percent right every time with every story we write about every single person at every single interaction. Like that is a really high standard to live by. And maybe, maybe I'm just, I, because I can't make a hundred percent, I don't want to play at all. That's kind of a pattern in my life too. But what if I just say, this is the story I wrote now, let's see if I can get writer cause I don't want to admit I'm wrong. So by leaving room for edits, you kind of print that story out, triple spaced, extra wide margins, and then with genuine curiosity, vulnerability, a sense of generosity is needed to be vulnerable and authentic. To be curious, you ask questions. You leave space to listen and take in the information that the other person is sharing with you and you edit the story that you wrote.
1: It's so beautiful. I mean, the whole concept is just wonderful. So I meet this person, I make this assumption, and now let's dive in and see what more there is to that. Not just is the assumption right or wrong. It doesn't matter. It's what more is there to this person? I, I, that's one thing I made the judgment on usually, right? One thing we do that on. How much more depths and levels are the layers are to, the, to this person that I could learn about that could change that conversation? Uh, you and I have close friends that at times, and we, we, we maybe early met them along the process, we're like, geez, I did not like talking to that person. <laughs> but, but now that I've gotten to know them, I love talking to them. Or honestly, maybe it's the other way people that thought, Oh, when I first met them, I loved, and that there's just another side there that I just don't want the drama. And so we steer clear of that, but it was filling in all the room that we were leaving for edits that gave a dis- discovery, positive or negative, right? That, Hey, this helps us along the path.
2: Well, and I think once you get in, and I believe that there is a connection between mindfulness and this practice, but once you get in the habit of having room for edits then when you're you know super super love someone they're great they're wonderful whoa where did that behavior come from i am not a fan of that you're not done it's just all still part of the process so leave i mean i don't write them off because all of a sudden i'm done but i'm available for there's still space available there And I find that if something has occurred that I'm like, no, right, like I'm just as judgmental, no deal breaker. If they come back with some kind of responsibility for that behavior, they're back in the game again. I think that that's really hard to do. And I think it can't be done without a sense of mindfulness. Absolutely. And so for
1: you, we were talking earlier about the mindfulness and the stereotype of it versus the reality of it. And you come from multiple worlds here, as far as you come from diversity to good enough now, as far as the mission and the, the messages that you've shared with the world. And we are in a place now where diversity is being talked about or inclusiveness is being talked about in a maybe more public manner than it has been. It's been talked maybe more academia in the past or maybe corporate legality in the past. But now we're talking about it more on a societal level in some ways. How does that fit into mindfulness? How does the idea of understanding or learning about others? uh, How do you apply that to mindfulness? Or how does mindfulness apply to that? Might be the question.
2: I mean, both are good questions. Um, The first answer is I don't know, and that's why I'm so intrigued by it. You know, I mean, if if I'm really answering, like, I haven't stumbled into ah, here is the answer. Of which question? Which question is that? I don't know. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) right. But, I mean, that's why I kind of still show up to work every day, is that I'm intrigued by the fact that this doesn't seem easy, even though it actually, at the heart of it, seems really simple. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. I'm also constantly pushed and challenged in ways by this kind of uh, trifecta. The thing that I'm hooked on right now that I can't answer, but I'm like, oh, this is fantastic, is in order to be inclusive... I have to really concentrate on who I exclude. I think inclusion, diversity, social justice has become this very easy kind of sexy set of vocabulary words that I can also get very complacent about. But the concept that I am intentionally excluding people so that I can be comfortable including the people I'm comfortable with. Oh, well, that just got real, right? Like, okay, so... Let's put that aside. Who am I excluding? Another conversation I was having earlier today, we were talking about the challenge of maintaining dear close friendships when our politics or belief systems are completely different. And what I think is really important is that I'm responsible for my own echo chamber and the internet, Facebook, things like that, like make it so easy for the algorithms to do nothing but tell me I am completely right yeah, so my my job is to be mindful that that is fake. That is a, a mathematical al- algorithm that is showing me only the kind of shoes I want to buy. okay. So great. How do I mess with that algorithm? What can I do intentionally to diversify the messages that I'm getting? Um, What messages am I absolutely not interested in hearing and intentionally excluding those folks? And with that, there's like this little glimmer of an opening that then allows me to have a much more purposeful relationship with the people in my life that are radically different than me because I value that difference in a way that isn't waiting for them to like see the light, but it's actually grateful that they don't see my perspective Right. Yes. When
1: I love what you said there, because when I'm doing trainings, like when I do train the trainer, whether it's a one day event, a one hour event or a three day event, we talk about, I have a blank. It says you can never be blank inclusive. And, and people in the room are all trainers are like, you can't be enough inclusive, or you can't be. I'm like, no, you can't be hundred percent inclusive. You can never be hundred percent inclusive. So I love what you're adding there, which is that idea of, so what are you excluding? Who are you excluding? Because if you can at least admit that, and there might be a good reason why, like you might go, I am excluding this due to, I am limited in the amount of time I have. And so we only have this that we can do. That makes logical sense. But you need to own that you're excluding it because otherwise you're back to not being inclusive in a way. So at least own it, right? And say, Hey, you know what? We're not discussing this for this. I'll give you an example that you and I talk about in our line of work when it comes to sexual violence, which is people say, Mike, why don't you talk more about false reports? And I say, here's why. I have limited time. And if I'm going to talk about false reports, if I shorten the time and only do it a real quick, 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 quick conversation, people hear, oh, false reports happen. Therefore, a lot of these are false reports. And I have to really dig into it to prove why that's not true and to use all the logic behind that. And we don't have the time to do that sometimes. So therefore, if I'm limited in time, I'm going to exclude a conversation on false reports because I'm not going to do it if I'm not going to give it proper justice. And But I got to own that and say, I'm intentionally making that choice. It could be, like you said, it could be politically. We're choosing to exclude that thought process. But are we admitting to ourselves why? I don't know that we usually are. I think we're just excluding without acknowledging the why. Would you agree that that's probably a lot where a lot of times we're not owning the why?
2: Absolutely, because, I mean, I, I don't mean to be using the word mindful in too many kind of cliche terms, but how centered and present do you have to be to take responsibility for what you are choosing to not engage with? Yeah. And sometimes it's room size, right? Sometimes it's your family member that you are magically always unavailable. Right. And I mean, I think that's important. And and I think about too, like when I, you know, travel country or whatever, I try really hard to stay in touch with friends that live in different cities. And I use the word friend very very loosely like I like you let's go out to dinner mostly because I'm an extrovert and get me out of my cheap hotel and there I was in San Diego and there's a friend of mine that I used to work with as a colleague who lives in San Diego and like the last four or five times I was in San Diego over like a decade I would call and say like hey or email more likely because you know I'm an X wire email like in a month I will be coming into town do you want to go to dinner any of these dates and I would always hear back, like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, like, two weeks out, I'd say, you know, I'm just confirming do you what night works better. Oh, I'm totally busy. Okay, well, after doing that, like, five or six times in a decade, I emailed back, I'm coming to San Diego. And I just said, hey, I just wanted to let you know there's a pattern. I'm coming to San Diego in a month. And the last six or seven times that I've done this, I've told you in a month's notice I'm coming. And then two weeks before I kind of reach out again and you're busy – I am coming in a month. I don't want to reach out in two weeks if like I'm annoying you. Maybe we're not friends. Maybe like you just, I don't know, but I just want to throw it out there. Like this is a pattern. Do you want to keep this pattern going? Cause I can just like remove you from the Rolodex of my mind that you live in San Diego. And he wrote back and was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that was happening. Like, of course I'll meet you for dinner. We go to dinner. We had a great time. Never heard from him since. Okay, great. Great. So I've removed him from my Rolodex, right? Like we had a lovely dinner. That doesn't take away his importance that he served in my life at the beginning of my professional career. So he's important to me and he could still be important to me. I don't have to be part of his daily life. And, and that's not an ego blow. That is. It is what it is and getting a little bit more comfortable with that, without the personalizing of the stories of, Oh, he hates me and he doesn't like me. And back in 1987, I sent a thing and he didn't like it. Like that is a lot of story that could just be, it's been 10 years. We don't have a lot in common anymore.
1: Yep. I've absolutely fallen into that of, Oh, what did I do? Or what did I say? Because you, we so want to be liked. So I love that, you know, I've, that reality of the other side of this ugliness, you know, that we're talking about is acknowledging that they could be excluding us for something that's not even personal, right? In other words, we're choosing to exclude. Why can't others choose to exclude us? I think, you know, be called
2: fairness. Mike.
1: Yes, I know. And I think how often do we forget that, right? That there are people we exclude. Why can't they exclude us? And it doesn't mean the same people. Why can't other people exclude us? that's only fair. That, Like you said, I think that's a great word. That's fairness. Jessica, you know how brilliant I think you are and I know you are. And I want to thank you for joining me today. Is there a book that recently you've read that you've thought, hey, you know what, this really fits this discovery or it helped you along the way in the path of discovery?
2: Um, what's interesting is I feel like I normally would be able to answer that because these are the kind of books I typically read. But there's some stuff going on in politics right now. So I started reading a children's mystery series just to have kind of a, a break from things. And um, I promise I'm answering your questions. So it's the Mrs. Polyfax books. They're available. There's like 12 of them or something. They're available in my county library. The first one was written in 1966. The last one I think was written in 1983. The one I just finished last night was endorsed by Angela Lansbury because Murder, She Wrote was on TV. And the reason why I'm bringing these up is, is that I am purposely trying not to be reading self-development, mindfulness, politics, etc. books. So I went to the children's section to read mysteries that are doing nothing but making me aware of politics and mindfulness and where I'm currently at. What, the reason why I bring that to you is is that I think when I am open to why I'm avoiding these topics, I will find those answers even when avoiding these topics. Yeah. The book before this last one was based in Bulgaria where I served in the Peace Corps. Um, the bad guys are Bulgarian. The really bad guys are communists because this is in the early 70s. And what was very interesting is one of the kind of Disassociative feelings I've been having around politics under the Trump administration is I don't understand why I'm not shocked. So my other kind of pinko commie liberal friends are like, what is happening? And I'm like, I am the same age, same background. Like, Why is this not weird to me? And it took a children's mystery novel for me to realize I've had the experience of living in a communist country when the quote unquote, first incredibly corrupt yet democratically sort of elected president took over Bulgaria. so the the confrontations with the media, the confrontations with economics or conflict of interest, this is not new to me because I lived it for two and a half years. But I don't know that I would have been open to that that particular experience had I' not been reading this children's novel trying to avoid politics. Because I'm still working through so much stuff that happened to me development-wise when I was serving in the Peace Corps, right? Right? So I don't know that I would have ever been able to make this connection if it weren't for a children's mystery book. I love it. And I love the fact that you just opened
1: up a whole nother can of worms as we're ending the interview. (laughs) So that would be the whole political environment. Obviously, you're sharing your views there, but it would be great, great sometime. Well, it'd be fun to explore that a deeper. You know how much I love you. Thank you so much, Jessica. For anyone watching right now, that's Jessica Pettit. That is P-E-T-T-I-T-T. That's Pettit. You can find her at goodenoughnow.com or just go to our website, everydaymindfulnessshow.com, where you'll see the show notes, which will connect you to Jessica. And until next time, may you enjoy everyday mindfulness in your life. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks.
0: We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. And check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.